Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, the dude who began this thing. (laughs) And uh, across the table is Matthew Stockton, the guy who does this thing with me. Hi, everybody. Hi, Matthew. How are you? I am good. I I met up with a fan on last week. Where? Where? In a cafe near my place. In a cafe near your place. And uh, was it somebody who we know from online or is just somebody who <laughs> randomly ran into you? A listener on, 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 and an onliner. Oh, there you go. I won't mention names, but, okay. but we had a very nice time walking Steve. Oh, that's nice. Yes. So, yeah, walking Steve, which is, uh, how's he? He is good. That's good. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. Canada has a rather embarrassing history of race relations, starting obviously with the indigenous peoples who lived here for thousands of years prior to the arrival of European colonizers. But there's been more. Our nation has also facilitated the mass internment of people perceived as threats to our national security during wartime. As World War I raged in Europe, internment camps were set up to house Ukrainians, Germans, Turks, and Bulgarians. Of the more than 8,500 detainees involuntarily held in camps across the country, a small percentage were women and children, the dependents of the men being held. Other internees included homeless people, conscientious objectors, and members of outlawed cultural and political associations. At the outset of World War II, a number of Canadian citizens of German and Italian descent, as well as Jewish refugees who were fleeing Europe and emigrating to Canada, were rounded up and put into internment camps. 
After the Japanese attack on the United States in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on the 6th of December 1941, North Americans were even more afraid. The Second World War had come far too close to home. Just over a month after that attack, a process began which saw the mass internment of Japanese Canadians from 1942 until 1949, four years after the war ended. Many of the detainees, including women and children, had been born in Canada or were naturalized citizens. The country they'd grown up to love had uprooted them from their homes, seized their properties, and taken away their rights and freedoms. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 240, The Shameful History of Wartime Internment in Canada. In an article titled Legalize Racism, the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, CRRF, says, quote, The myth that Canada is a land in which human rights have always been protected and respected is so deeply ingrained in the minds of Canadians that there is often a refusal to acknowledge that Canada has a racist history, which has been echoed in modern policies. However, Canada's racist past is observable, requiring only an overview of legislation that has been implemented in the course of Canada's history. From a 1995 report by Henry Tater, Mattis, and Rees, quote, The Canadian government, through the Indian Act of 1876 and subsequent legislation and treaties, introduced institutionalized racism in the relationship between Canada and its Aboriginal peoples that continues to flourish today, end quote. The CRRF article mentioned above continues, quote, An overview of the racist policies that have been implemented in Canada begins most logically with an account of the state's relationship with First Nations peoples. In Canada, First Nations have been subjugated, segregated, and in some cases completely annihilated by racist policies and assumptions. In 500 years since contact with Europeans, First Nations peoples have been treated to overtly racist and assimilationist policies. They have been segregated in reserves, their children have been taken away from them, and their governments, traditions, and ceremonies have been regulated and banned. The relationship between Canada and the First Nations people has been marked by social, economic, political, and cultural oppression. End quote. Even though Canadian youngsters have been taught about our participation in the Underground Railroad, set up to help black slaves escape the United States, we too allowed for the enslavement of blacks until the early 19th century. And even as we were saving fleeing slaves, racist policies ensured these people were treated like second-class citizens, less than white Canadians. You can learn more about that in episode 138 of Dark Poutine, a Brief History of Slavery in Canada and Africville. Canada's relationship with Chinese immigrants was awful too. According to CRRF, Chinese laborers in Canada were subject to horrific working conditions. They were paid one quarter of the wages of white workers, and they were only welcomed in Canada so long as there was a labor shortage. Racist legislation including, included the passing of anti-Chinese bills which restricted the civil and political rights of Chinese Canadians. Chinese Canadians were disenfranchised, barred from public office, and excluded from professional occupations. I have um, a 
graphic novel mm -hmm. ca called The Good Asian that was sitting on my desk this morning. Okay. It's fantastic. I recommend it to anyone. And it's around this time. But at the back, they're so smart. They have a history of, there's a thing in America called the Chinese Exclusion Act in yeah. 1882, mm -hmm. which was less about war, uh, more about, um, there's a surge in immigration at the time. So it's it was the whole Chinese workers uh, lowering our wages sort of backlash, right? Right. Um, so if any American listeners want to learn about that, bizarrely, at the back of this um, graphic novel, uh, The Good Asian, is, is a little history. Um, because we have, uh, every country has these little horrible histories, don't they? Yeah, definitely. It's interesting that we're talking about this especially Chinese were barred from holding public office as Vancouver just yesterday, when we're recording this podcast, elected its very first person of color, a person of Chinese heritage yeah. as mayor of the city. I voted for him. There you go. Ken Sim. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's, it's really interesting that we see ourselves as so progressive, but the very first mayor of color comes in 2022 in Vancouver. And there's been a Large Asian population for years in this province. Years and years, yeah. Uh, it's a bit, uh, that took a while. Yeah. Before the beginning of World War I, a Japanese steamship called the Komagatu Maru anchored in Burrard Inlet in the Vancouver Harbor. Mostly from the Punjab area of India, they dreamt of emigrating to Canada for a better life. Thanks to exclusionary Canadian immigration policies meant to prevent immigration from certain countries, including India, the ship was not allowed to dock. They sat in harbor without adequate food and water for more than two and a half months, awaiting court challenges. They were deported in late July and let out of the harbor under naval escort. On returning to India, they were diverted away from Calcutta, and when they finally landed, a riot broke out with British forces during which 29 unarmed passengers were shot, 20 of whom died. And we covered that in Dark Routine episode 129, excluded the Kamagato Maru incident. On the 22nd of August, 1914, after the outbreak of the First World War, Canadian Parliament adopted the War Measures Act as law. It had been in effect since August 4th of that year. The Act gave sweeping powers and was in place until January 10th, 1920, two years after the First World War ended. From the CanadianEncyclopedia.ca, the Act gave the government full authority during wartime to censor and suppress communications, to arrest, detain, and deport people without charges or trials, to control transportation, trade, and manufacturing, and to seize private property. As a result, the Act was used to ban 253 publications, including 222 American, 164 foreign language, and 89 leftist publications. Following the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in 1917, socialist reading materials in particular were targeted for censure. Membership in left-leaning or pacifist organizations was forbidden. People were also arrested and interned for their political beliefs. You know my feelings toward government. You're not a big government guy. And these acts that governments do, mm -hmm. right? The War Measures Act then. And then remember Trudeau Sr. did the War Measures Act for the because of the October crisis right. in the FQ in 1970. Then his son did the <laughs> Emergencies Act uh, February 14th of this year. 
Because of the Freedom Convoy. Freedom Convoy. Yeah. Which now is, if correct me if I'm wrong, there's a, a commission yes. set up. And I think those commissions are really important because mm-hmm. you can't just willy-nilly flagrantly do these things. And what often happens is when governments give themselves more power... They'll overreach. They totally overreach. Mm-hmm. It's it's in the nature of governments, right? So these sort of acts, I'm always they always stress me out. And it, time and time again, it's proven that this horrible stuff happens. I mean, you know, the act. You know, we this this episode, Mike. So much about racism, but it, it's also about difference. It's about, because, you know, it, it's the Bolsheviks, it's the left, it's the right, it's mm-hmm. this, it's that. It's the other. It's, it's the other, it's yeah. them. But it all mixes together, right? So part of this is racism, part of it is a fear, part of it is economic. It's a very complex way of people being horrible to each other, isn't yeah. it? You know? It's interesting that the commission has been set up to look at the convoy, the freedom convoy. I mean, I didn't agree with what was going on. But I also didn't agree with the way it was dealt with. Emer- uh, Emergencies Act? I was like, really, guys? Mm-hmm. Uh, even the Ottawa police this week said that they don't believe that the Emergencies Act was necessary. I so I don't think it was either. Uh, we'll see. We'll see as the commission unfolds. Oh, I'll probably ignore the commission and say <laughs> I didn't think it was necessary anyway. <laughs> there you go. The people being detained during World War I were labeled threats to our national security by the federal government. Many were recent immigrants from the Austro-Hungarian, German, and Ottoman empires. Some were Canadian-born or naturalized British subjects. From warmuseum.ca, quote, At the outset of war in 1914, the Canadian government quickly enacted the Federal War Measures Act, The act's sweeping powers permitted the government to suspend or limit civil liberties in the interest of Canada's protection, including the right to incarcerate, quote, enemy aliens. As well, according to the CanadianEncyclopedia.ca, around 80,000 people, mostly Ukrainian Canadians, were obliged to register as enemy aliens during the war. They were compelled to report regularly to the police and were subjected to other state-sanctioned censures. These included restrictions of their freedom of speech as well as their movement and association. It's amazing how things change at different contexts because what's happening right now, mm-hmm. right? We're taking in Ukrainian refugees. In a big way, yeah. Completely the opposite of what we were doing back then. Mm-hmm. A total of 8,579 enemy aliens were placed in 24 receiving stations and internment camps across the country. Of the total number interned, 5,954 were of Austro-Hungarian origin, including Croats, Ruthenians, Slovaks, Czechs, and Ukrainians. 2,009 were German, 205 were Turks, and 99 were Bulgarians. According to Sir William Dillon Otter, who was in charge of internment operations, 3,138 detainees were actual prisoners of war, meaning they had been captured or were enemy reserves. The rest were civilians. There were among them women and children, typically the families of male internees. One account of an internment comes from Mary Manko Haskett, who was a child at the time when her family was taken into custody. They were imprisoned at a camp built in Spirit Lake, Quebec, 
surrounded by 400 kilometers of forest. In that camp, 1,200 people, including 60 women and children, were kept under armed guard for two years. Years later, Mary, born in Montreal to Ukrainian parents, shared her memories, and they were published on CanadaAx.com. She said, quote, When Ottawa imprisoned my family, I was six years old. I did not do anything wrong. My parents came to Canada in search of liberty. They were invited here. They worked hard, helped build the country with their blood, toil, and tears. At first they told us we could work or not work as we saw fit. But these conditions only lasted one month or two. Then, if you refused to work, they put you on dry bread and water. And if you did not work, they stopped feeding you. I was convinced that they didn't have the right to act like this, end quote. And they didn't. No. And here's the human costs of war and governments overreaching with these, quote, acts, right? Sure. And people high up in the government could say, well, we didn't know that was happening at the local level. But they know it did. And what is amazing is how that is just so un-Canadian from what we think of Canada to be. Yeah. To earn their keep in the internment camps, the able-bodied men were required to work on huge labor projects, often involving infrastructure like road building. However, they were also used in logging and mining. One project these workers were utilized for included the construction of a golf course in Banff National Park. For their efforts, they were paid 25 cents a day, and that was half of regular laborers. The property of the internees was seized by the Canadian government, and very little of that property was returned to the internees at the end of the war. Due to terrible conditions in some of the camps, there were wildcat worker strikes, escape attempts, and uprisings. One riot involving 1,200 internees at Capus Casing, Ontario in May 1916 required 300 armed soldiers to quell. There were deaths as well. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, quote, In total, 107 internees died in captivity. Six were shot dead while trying to escape. Others succumbed to infectious diseases, work-related injuries, and suicide. In many cases, they were buried in unmarked graves or cemeteries far from their communities and loved ones. End quote. The tragic stories of two men who died by suicide in the camps paint a particularly dire picture of the desperation felt by many internees. From CanadaAx.com, quote, One man housed at the Castle Mountain Camp near Banff was George Luca Budak. He was listed as a prisoner of war in official documents, but in truth, he was held in an internment camp because he held an Austrian passport. Budak had complained to officers for several weeks about the ill treatment he was receiving from other prisoners. The guards put him in a cell in the guard room. One night, when he went to his cell, another prisoner heard a noise and called the sergeant of the guard. The guards went to Budak's cell and found him under his bed. They pulled him out. They discovered that he had taken a razor and cut his throat, but did not cut the larynx. He then took the razor and cut open his abdomen. These cuts were deep enough to cut into his intestines. He would live for another hour in agony until he died. William Percheluk had come to Canada between 1911 and 1914 and found himself sent to the Castle Mountain internment camp in 1915, where he remained until June 26, 1916. He was put to work in the coal mines despite having breathing problems. While he was given a brief parole in Calgary, 
he enlisted with the military to escape the coal mines. Two days later, he was ready to leave for France when a former guard from Castle Mountain recognized him and arrested him as an escaped prisoner. He was sent back to the internment camp while wearing his full military uniform. On December 5, 1916, he died by suicide back at the camp. End quote. More than six decades after the end of World War I, in the late 1980s, headed by the Ukrainian-Canadian Civil Liberties Association, UCCLA, the remaining survivors of the camps and descendants of other internees had been calling on the Canadian government to officially acknowledge and apologize for the World War I internments. They also wanted memorialization of the places of internment as historic sites. In 1994, Stefa Mielniksuk, who'd survived the Spirit Lake internment camp, unveiled a plaque honoring the internees, but it would take some time before the Canadian government really got their act together. In 2005, the official recognition came. On November 25th of that year, the Senate of Canada voted unanimously to pass Bill C-331, the Internment of Persons of Ukrainian Origin Recognition Act, closely following the vote of the House of Commons on November 23, 2005, and it later received royal assent. The summary of Bill C-331 reads, quote, This enactment acknowledges that persons of Ukrainian origin were interned in Canada during the First World War under the authority of an Act of Parliament and expresses the deep sorrow of Parliament for that event. The enactment provides for negotiations to take place between the Government of Canada and certain specified Ukrainian-Canadian organizations in respective measures that may be taken to recognize the internment. These measures may include the installation of commemorative plaques as well as public education initiatives. The enactment also allows a request to be made to the Canada Post Corporation for the issue of a commemorative stamp or set of stamps, end quote. In 2008, a fund of $10 million was set aside for educational and commemorative projects. The money has funded documentaries, public education, and a construction of the Spirit Lake Interpretive Centre, which was launched in July of 2010. On October 22, 2014, 100 bilingual English and French plaques were unveiled to recall the 100th anniversary of the implementation of the 1914 War Measures Act and the start of internment operations across Canada. In 2017, the fund supported the installation of a permanent exhibit about Canada's first national internment operations in the Canada History Hall of the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, Quebec. In June of 2020, the UCCLA had a press release printed in full in the Globe and Mail National Edition, remembering the 100th year since the end of Canada's first national internment operations. It read, quote, On Saturday, June 20, 2020, Canadians will mark the 100th anniversary of the conclusion of internment operations of Ukrainian and other Europeans that began during the First World War and continued for nearly two years after the war ended. More than a century ago, thousands of enemy aliens were arrested then herded into camps scattered across the country from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Nanaimo, B.C. The internees were forced to do heavy labor for the profit of their jailers and suffered other state-sanctioned indignities, not because they had done anything wrong, but because of who they were and where they had come from. 
commenting, Ukrainian-Canadian Civil Liberties Association Chairman Boris Sidoryuk said, quote, This year we remember the 100th year since the final prisoner, unjustly arrested in a country to which he or she was invited, was finally paroled. On Saturday, June 20th, 2020, please join us in remembering these men, women, and children. Only in knowing and learning from Canada's darker historical episodes can we help prevent future such injustices from happening again. And that's it right there, right? Mm. Even us doing the show we chose to do the show is knowing your history and not sort of varnishing it with this happy clappy, hey, we've been perfect all along, is hugely important. Because I think, Mike, in the 1970s and the 80s, when you and I were in school, we didn't get a lot of, we didn't get a lot of the darker side. No, we didn't get any of the and darker side, no. We got this sort of sanitized look. To grow as individuals within a society and to grow as a society, as painful as it might be or as embarrassing as it might be or whatever, you've got to you've got to hit it head on. Yeah. Right? After a quick break, we'll be back with the second round of internment of Canadian citizens, this time during World War II. We'll highlight the internment of Japanese Canadians, and I will share some thoughts from my recent visit to the internment camp called Tashmi in the Sunshine Valley here in BC, just east of Hope. There, between 1942 and 1946, that camp had a peak population of more than 2,600 forcibly detained Japanese Canadians. And we are back. Matthew comments and thoughts, etc. So I went a few years ago to an event held by the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, who I was doing some work for at the time. Um, and it, the event was about the Japanese-Canadian internment camps. And, and I sat with people uh, who were relatives and ancestors of, of the people that were in these camps. Sure. And um, they're taking questions. And I kind of knew the answer, but I wanted to ask the question. I said, I wasn't there. I didn't do this. I don't believe in collective racial guilt. Help everyone at the, this event sort of understand that. And the answer was, and I knew this would be the answer, it was because I, I just wanted it brought up, was while we weren't there and we didn't do it ourselves, as members of a society, it's important that we try to make things better and make amends, if you will. And I think that's really important because often what happens is, oh, that's all history. People should just forget about it, right? Yeah. But, well, that's not how history works. When something ends, people don't go, okay, that was horrible. Let's just move on. Things draw out for generations, right? Yeah. And just to say, oh, it happened in the past. It doesn't matter. It does matter. And no, you know, you're not guilty for it. But, you know, as a member of, of society, but what are you doing to make sure it doesn't happen again and make it better? Mm -hmm. As tensions in Europe exploded into a second world war, the Canadian government, fearful of citizens with roots in countries whom we were now at war with, again invoked the War Measures Act on 25th of August, 1939. The act was used to implement the Defense of Canada regulations. These gave the Minister of Justice the authority to detain anyone acting, quote, in a manner prejudicial to the public safety or safety of the state, end quote. As a result, both enemy nationals and Canadian citizens 
were subject to internment. The Army and the Secretary of State shared administrative responsibility for overseeing the internment camps. More than 40 camps held around 24,000 people in total. A total of 26 internment camps were in Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, and New Brunswick. German-Canadian internees, many of whom were members of German-sponsored organizations like the National Unity Party, the Canadian Nazi Party, were accused of being subversives and spies. German immigrants, who'd landed after 1922, around 16,000 of them, were forced to register with the authorities. German prisoners of war were also housed in these camps. Italians, too, 600 of them, who were seen as having ties to Mussolini's fascist regime, were also placed into three camps, Kananaskis, Alberta, Petawawa, Ontario, and Fredericton, New Brunswick. Approximately 31,000 Italian Canadians were registered as enemy aliens. These people were forced to report to local registrars or to RCMP stations once a month. Around 3,000 European refugees fleeing for their lives were also placed into internment camps in Canada. Among this 3,000 were 2,300 German and Austrian Jews aged 16 to 60. We all now know the very real threat they were under from Hitler and his stormtroopers, yet they were determined a threat and interned in guarded camps in Ontario, Quebec, and New Brunswick. Early on, many of these Jews, fleeing persecution, were placed in camps along with the very Nazis, now prisoners of war, from whom they were fleeing. In dramatic fashion, the Japanese drew the Western world into the war against them on December 7, 1941, when they attacked Pearl Harbor in Honolulu, Hawaii, just before 8 a.m. that day. 21 American ships and over 300 aircraft were sunk or damaged, and 2,418 Americans were killed. Japan lost 29 planes in return. That same day, Japan declared war on the United States, Great Britain, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and South Africa. In turn, Canada declared war on Japan and also declared war on Finland, Hungary, and Romania, as those nations had aligned with the fascists. On December 8, 1941, one day after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, wartime blackout measures went into effect all along the B.C. coast. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, on the same day as the attack on Pearl Harbor, quote, the RCMP interned 38 Japanese nationals. Later, an additional 720 Japanese were imprisoned. They were mainly Canadian citizens and members of the Nisei Mass Evacuation Group who resisted separation from their families, end quote. There was already a well-developed history of Japanese-focused racism in British Columbia. An influx of Japanese people immigrating to Canada began in 1858 during the Fraser Canyon Gold Rush. Japanese and other nationalities of Asian heritage were treated as second-class citizens and denied the right to vote. From the Provincial Elections Act of B.C. in 1895, and there's some racist language here, quote, No Chinaman, Japanese, or Indian shall have his name placed on the register of voters for any electoral district or be entitled to vote at any election, end quote. There were other racist policies that they had to endure as well. From the article titled From Racism to Redress, The Japanese-Canadian Experience, quote, The majority of them were Canadians by birth or naturalized citizens. While they worked as fishermen and laborers and paid taxes, they were denied the right to vote. 
35 years after the first person of Japanese origin settled in Canada, his name was Manzo Nagano, Japanese Canadians continued to face persecution and racism. At the turn of the century, anti-Asian sentiment was rampant. Successive waves of Asian immigration gave rise to a public anxiety over the, quote, yellow peril. It reached a fevered pitch in 1907 when a crowd at an anti-Asian rally suddenly turned into a mob and marched through Vancouver's Chinatown and Japantown, breaking store windows. The riot was stirred by the consolidation of anti-Asian agitation by industrialist workers and exploitation of the public sentiment by media and politicians. The government reacted by restricting immigration of Japanese nationals to Canada from 400 in 1908 to 150 in 1923. There's so much to unpack there. Yeah. So some people born in this country were not allowed to vote because of their heritage. Right. That's just insanity. Mm -hmm. And what you were just saying there, there's a lot going on because... You know, sometimes, and you and I had this discussion earlier, sometimes anti-immigration isn't racist, right? Right. It, because there's, like, economic... Ra racism can be an element of it. And it often is, right? right? And yep. that's the thing. And, mm -hmm. and, and all this stuff feeds on each other, like immigration and the economy, and and people will start to lean towards their bent, if you will, sure. in the middle of all of this. And, and But when government itself is doing this mm. and media is whipping it up you know the more feeble-minded who who don't understand it has nothing to do with race it has to do with economy and everything else right just go on these rampages mm -hmm. it's horrible again from the article titled from racism to redress the japanese canadian experience quote despite the racism the community continued to develop and prosper during the years of limited immigration women arrived and families began to grow Japanese Canadians, still without the franchise, volunteered for service in World War I. By 1919, Japanese Canadians owned nearly half of the fishing licenses in BC, but by 1925, 1,000 fishing licenses were stripped from them. End quote. According to PolicyAlternatives.ca, British Columbian governments and officials played a major role in the incarceration and dispossession of Japanese Canadians and in other racist actions over the years, including 170 anti-Asian laws from 1895 to 1950 that seriously impacted the Japanese-Canadian community. So, the mass internment of Japanese-Canadians was a foregone conclusion after a war had been declared with Japan. Immediately following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, there was widespread fear that anyone of Japanese descent, in particular the coastal fishers who made up the majority of BC's fishing fleet, might act against Canada's interests. Canada began seizing some 1,200 fishing boats belonging to Japanese Canadians and selling them off to mostly white fishermen. Japanese-language newspapers were shut down. From Tashmi.ca, quote, in 1942, the area 100 miles inland from the west coast of British Columbia was designated a protected area. In early February, all male enemy aliens between the ages of 18 and 45 were forced to leave the protected area. Most were sent to work on road camps in the BC interior. And those enemy aliens, of course, were Japanese Canadians. 
On February 24, 1942, the Order in Council, P.C. 1486, authorized the removal of all, quote, persons of Japanese racial origin and gave the RCMP the power to search without a warrant, enforce a dust-to-dawn curfew, and to confiscate cars, radios, firearms, and cameras. Confiscated cars rounded up at Hastings Park were later sold off at bargain prices by the custodian of enemy alien property and they were ushered out of their homes, Japanese Canadians were told that they could take with them only what they could carry, two suitcases or 150 pounds for adults and 75 pounds for each child. The majority of internees were not Japanese nationals. More than 75% of them were Canadian citizens. Canada was imprisoning its own. The alleged reason for the Japanese Canadians being interned was because they were a threat to military security. However, neither the Army, federally, nor the RCMP shared this view. Even Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King did not believe Japanese Canadians were a threat. He stated in the House of Commons in 1944, quote, It's a fact that no person of Japanese race born in Canada has ever been charged with any act of sabotage or disloyalty during the years of war, end quote. He'd been shouted down, though, of course. It was racism, plain and simple, by well-known racist BC MLAs and MPs that incited the internment of Japanese Canadians en masse. From policyalternatives.ca, quote, The BC government appointed MLAs Winch and Pearson and Attorney General Maitland to the Advisory Committee to the BC Security Commission that supervised the uprooting of Japanese Canadians and ordered the provincial police to round up the community and patrol the incarceration camps throughout the province. They separated men from their wives, splitting up families, refused to pay for the education of Japanese Canadian children in the camps, and caused trauma that echoes across generations. They also enabled mass dispossession of all property of Japanese Canadians without compensation. From Hastings Park, 1942.ca. In early 1942, the Pacific National Exhibition, P&E Grounds, in East Vancouver were chosen to temporarily house Japanese Canadians until they could be placed in long-term camps. The large grounds were also used to collect and store impounded vehicles and set up a hospital and an office of the BC Security Commission. Eleven buildings at Hastings Park were used for various purposes, including housing men, women, and children, kitchen and mess hall, infirmary, administration offices, and education, along with other assorted uses. Many of the buildings are no longer standing. But some of the ones that were, and I wanted to get into this, were like horse barns. So people were put into horse barns. They're shelved, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, it's like treated like livestock. It's kind of strange that, you know, people like go to concerts and have the fair rides in the, like, the P&E is like this exhibition and like there's roller coasters Yeah, where this happened as well. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it wasn't, nobody was living in a lap, lap of luxury in internment camps. No. It was sparse conditions. And we get into more of that later on. From CanadianHistoryBits.wordpress.com, quote, to fund the internment operation, just like before, the government took possession of property, money, and belongings. Japanese men had two choices. Either remain with their families and work on prairie farms or move to isolated work camps where conditions reportedly were better. 
Most chose to stay with their families. Working on a farm was akin to slave labor. Internees either lived in tiny shacks with no electricity or water, or in unsanitary stables and barns. Several families would reside in a single dwelling. Privacy was non-existent. Laborers spent their days in fields picking vegetables, often sugar beets. Some camps did try to create a resemblance of normal life. Children went to school, laborers were paid tiny wages, and they were allowed to operate shops within the camps. That being said, conditions in some of these camps got so bad that the Red Cross intervened and shipped food to starving families, end quote. What follows will be a very general and brief snapshot of life in one of the camps, Tajmi, which I recently traveled to, to see the Tajmi Museum at 14781 Alpine Boulevard in the Sunshine Valley, the site of that internment camp. I noted that cell service through the mountains was flaky and at times on my trip non-existent. I was reminded by Ryan Ellen, curator of the Tajmi Museum, that the road I had traveled, the Hope Princeton Highway, was built using laborers, many of whose families were interned at the Tajmi camp. Adding to the remote feeling, a power outage 30 minutes into my visit required that I walk around the interior of the museum in the dark with zero cell service as the power to the cell towers was down as well. Ryan and I chatted and he told me that it was common for the power to go out due to a car crash on the highway or severe weather. The power didn't come back, so after an hour I left but not before learning a lot from my host. Ryan told me that he started the museum six years ago, and he bought the barn in 2007, wanting to move his printing shop from Langley up to the Sunshine Valley, where he had spent so many summers as a kid. But after learning of the property's history from Japanese friends' family in Steveston, he felt a growing compulsion to do more. It took a month and a half to clear out the main building, and much that Ryan found were artifacts that former residents of the camp might find a valuable part of their heritage. Over the winter of 2015 and 16, Ryan started to create the Tajmi Museum, a private museum funded from his own pocket. In August 2016, he opened his doors to the public for the first time. Ryan said, although in the later summer and early fall the museum is open only on Saturdays to the public, due to snow, many families of, and even numerous former residents of the internment camp, come to tour the site, many sharing intimate family memories from their time at the site. Admission is free, but donations are welcome. If you want to visit or learn more, please go to the website tashmi.ca. At the website, one can read extensive first-hand accounts of life at Tashmi, and they are well worth looking at. And what an amazing story, really, about Ryan Allen, who created this museum. So let me get it right. So he just happened to buy the land because he had a printing shop that he was opening. Yes. Started understanding, and now he's become this. So just just by chance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, had he not been there in that location who knows would have been different and well there would be no museum what's interesting is like see this this is what i'm talking about when what are what are you doing right Mm -hmm. is he he had no responsibility for what happened right but he fell upon this uh, uh opportunity to go you know what this is a really important piece of history that needs to be heard and learned yep totally yeah, and, and I, I think... I like this guy. I like him, too. Um, <laughs> and having met him, I like him. Was he a nice guy? When he was a him? great guy. Yeah. He was really enthusiastic about talking to me about uh, 
what happened in Tashmi. He really is knowledgeable about the history. And obviously he's, he's the one who put all the history together on the website. People like this are fantastic. Yeah, he's right? a great guy. Like there's, they're few and far between. So go visit Ryan mm. if you get the chance in Tashmi, which is in Sunshine Valley, outside of Hope. Outside of Hope? Yeah, just it's just east of Hope. From Tashmi.ca. Beginning in March 1942, women, children, and the elderly were sent to internment camps, many in abandoned mining or logging towns in the interior. The British Columbia Security Commission was established to plan, supervise, and direct this forced removal. In 1942, the site that was to become Tashmi was chosen to house 500 families of men between the ages of 18 and 45 who were separated from their families and sent to work on the Hope Princeton Highway while living in road camps along the route. As the men were allowed to join their families and because the men were needed to actually help build the camp, the need for increased housing resulted in the establishment of Tashmi Internment Camp, end quote. So on July 2nd, 1942, the Department of National Defense entered into an agreement with the owner, Amos Bliss Trites, also a successful mining executive, to lease the ranch for $500 per month until the end of the Second World War. The area is remote, even today, as I mentioned. The name of the newly established camp was a point of concern as the post office would not recognize the name Trites Farm for mail delivery. The BC Security Commission chose to rename it as T-A-S-H-M-E, Tashmi, derived from the first two letters of the last names of three commissioners, Austin Taylor, a prominent Vancouver businessman, John Shiraz of the BC Provincial Police, and Fred Mead of the RCMP. Tashmi is a mishmash of their letters and their last names. Like, what an egotistical, shitty thing. Could you imagine, like, having an internment camp named after you. Right? Fuck those guys. Tashmi was the last and largest of all the camps in BC, many of which were much further east. The ranch had originally been a dairy and livestock farm, so several of the ranch's extant buildings were repurposed during the internment. These buildings included a horse stable, a pig barn, a slaughterhouse, a blacksmith shop, and a garage. Barns were renovated for use as living quarters, a community hall, and a school for the children in the camp. Accommodations were planned for 2,966 people. Housing was constructed on site, often by the internees themselves. Small houses, which were simple tar paper shacks, were hastily constructed using lumber from the surrounding forest milled in the on-site sawmill. Measuring approximately 4 by 7 meters, 14 by 24 feet, they housed as many as 8 persons, often from more than one family. The field that is now a campground once held 347 small wooden shacks. Imagine rows and rows of these small houses arranged on 10 avenues running north to south on the land. Each shack was subdivided into three sections. A living area in the center with one or two bedrooms on either side. Interior doors were not permitted. Curtains provided privacy. With no electricity, kerosene lamps requiring constant cleaning provided the only source of indoor light. There was no indoor plumbing, and the residents of four shacks had to share an outhouse with four privies located in the backyards between the rows of houses. 
water was also a shared commodity, with just one common outdoor tap at every fourth house on each avenue. A round potbelly-style wood stove in the kitchen provided the only source of heat. Despite the harsh winter climate, the shacks were not insulated, and during the first winter, the rough shiplap lumber shrank as it dried, creating gaps that let the severe winter weather inside. Internees complained of nearly unbearable conditions and of having to chip away ice, which stuck their blankets to the walls in the morning when they awoke. It gets colder up there towards Hope than it does here. Totally it does. That, that, that's not, you do not want to have no insulation right. uh, in that area of, of the province. And I think one of the most offensive things to me about this whole thing is like, okay, Japanese Canadians worked hard fishing, doing whatever they were doing. Fishing was the predominant industry. Had homes that they were taken from mm. and put into these shitty little shacks in the cold climate with barely any, like having to share it. Who does this to people who are citizens of your country? It's just insanity. Yeah. It's, um, we sit here with, you know, your mouth opens in shock when you hear this. Mm -hmm. You can't imagine it happening now, but it can if you don't remember these things. One of the existing barns on the property, now Sunshine Valley Community Center, was an apartment of 38 suites on two floors with communal kitchens on each floor. A former sheep barn was used as living quarters for single men. From Tashmi.ca, quote, Internees started arriving in Tashmi on September 8, 1942 from Hastings Park in Vancouver. Traveling by train to Hope and bus or truck to Tashmi, they came in groups of 150 persons as houses were hastily built. Hastings Park was closed on September 28th, and the last group bound for Tashmi left Vancouver in early October 1942. By December 1942, some 347 houses had been built, end quote. It's believed that the population reached its peak, 2,644 people, in January of 1943. From Tashmi.ca, quote, During the four years that Tashmi was open, it became a bustling small town. Residents established schools and a hospital. They devised ways to govern themselves to keep peace and order in the camp. They built bathhouses and grew gardens. There was a general store, a powerhouse, a post office, and an RCMP detachment. Some people found employment in a shoyu and miso factory on the site, in logging and sawmill operations, or in the construction of the Hope Princeton Highway. Young people participated in youth organizations and clubs. Families did their best to make life as normal as possible despite the deprivations of internment. End quote. Hiroshi Okuda, a UBC graduate, was the first principal appointed for the school responsible for the upkeep of education for the school-aged children in Tashmi. He was also responsible for recruiting teachers from among the camp's residents. In October 1942, there were 138 kindergarten students, 527 in elementary school, and 167 in high school, a total of 834 students. 410 were boys and 424 were girls. Some of the teachers recruited had never taught a class, and they had to learn right along with their students. To keep the children and adults busy outside school and work hours, a youth organization was formed. Children learned to sing, and concerts were held. Indoor and outdoor basketball courts were installed, and divisions of men's, women's, boys, and girls' teams 
competed against one another year-round. Summertime was for baseball. Three leagues were formed, senior, junior, and old men's. The rivalries among the teams were friendly, but fiercely competitive. The Tashmi Poetry Society was also established. From Tashmi.ca, quote, Mr. Fukio Samashima began to study haiku when he was 25 years old and devoted to haiku throughout his life. He came to Tashmi from Port Alberni, where he operated a shoe business. While in Tashmi, he and Kazui were married, the third couple in Tashmi to do so. Following internment, he and his family moved to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and later to Barnwell, Alberta, and finally Coaldale, Alberta. He was active in Tashmi Poetry Society and helped to produce the Society's publications. Two anthologies of poems from the camp, with several hundred poems written by internees, were published after the war, and many of those poems were, of course, haiku. On the Tashmi.ca website, I found several compelling poems. The Cold Moon Soaks My Lungs Through the Open Door. And that's by Southern Fish, Yamabiko Winter 11. Sunflower, My Morning Heart Smiles to You by Fat Potato in Yamabiko 5. Snow on Pine, Shone by the New Sun, High in the Sky by Takeda, Lonesome Village. And from Bonfire, People Are Stirred by the Emergency Alarm That Reverberates into the Summer Sky. I love haikus. Haikus are so cool. Can I, I'll try to make one up right now from your cats to you. Okay. And I'll, I'll get like the, the, the rhythm wrong, but you sleep in morning, you ignore my meow, I stand on your face. <laughs> oh God. Would your cats do that haiku to you? Nah, well, my door is shut. Right ah, now because smart. Yeah, because they would be leaping all over you. Well, they're too kitteny right now to yeah. be doing anything, but, but thank you for the kitty haiku. <laughs> Boy Scouts and Girl Guides were a large part of camp life for kids. An internee named Shige Edward Yoshida was responsible for organizing a scouting program for the young boys and later a guides program for the young girls of Tashmi. From Tashmi.ca, quote, In Tashmi, Shige was employed by the BC Security Commission as a clerk in the welfare department. In February 1943, Mr. Yoshida organized the first Tashmi troop. It was sponsored by the Tashmi Youth Organization and authorized by Boy Scouts Dominion Headquarters in Ottawa. Two months after its formation, the troop showed its mettle and training when a fire broke out in the single men's quarters. Fifty men were successfully evacuated, and a news clipping of the day reads, quote, The young Boy Scouts formed a guard to keep the crowd back and later prepared emergency accommodations for those driven from the damaged building, end quote. At its peak... The troop was about 200 boys, all in uniform, Shige said proudly. They raised uniform money by putting on shows and with the willing help of parents, end quote. As the war ended, the racist treatment of the Japanese Canadians did not. Ian Alistair Mackenzie, British Columbia's senior cabinet minister, wrote, quote, It is the government's plan to get these people out of B.C. as fast as possible. It is my personal intention as long as I remain in public life, to see they never come back here. Let our slogan for British Columbia be, No Japs from the Rockies to the Seas, end quote. Tashmi was the first internment camp scheduled for closure after the war. 
By June of 1946, families and individuals were leaving every week to seek employment elsewhere in the province or in other parts of Canada. By June 25th, the hospital had closed and the equipment was shipped to other camps where people were awaiting dispersal to other places. Tashmi was officially closed on August 12, 1946, but a few families remained to dismantle the camp and clean up the property for its return to its owner. The last family departed from Tashmi in October 1946. From policyalternatives.ca, quote, After the war, BC legislators demanded that Japanese Canadians be sent to Japan, a country most had never seen, or dispersed across the country. Today, 60% of the community resides outside of the province. BC Premier Byron Johnson refused to allow Japanese Canadians to return to the coast until April 1949. So this is four years after the war. Mm. Well, I wouldn't go back to a place that I was persecuted in either, but I guess the other 40% had to return because their livelihood was here, which was fishing. Yeah. Like, what are your options here? You go back to Japan. Go, it's not go back to Japan. It's go to Japan. You've never been there. Like, they're not even citizens of Japan. Like, Japan probably, people showed up on their door and they're like, well, you're not. You're Who not, the hell are these folks? You're not Japanese. Yeah. The Bird Commission was struck post-war to look into the compensation of Japanese Canadians. By 1950, the commission's report was published with recommendations. The commission found that claims relating to fishing boats should receive 12.5% of the sale price as compensation and receive the custodian of enemy properties 13.5% commission. Of the 950 boats seized in 1941, only 75 claims were processed by the Bird Commission, so it was probably too complicated. Claims relating to fishing nets and gear would receive 25% of the sale price. Claims relating to cars and trucks should receive 25% of the sale price. Claims relating to the sale of personal belongings were deemed mostly worthless, and claimants received the Custodian of Enemies Properties Commission plus 6.8% of the sale price. So 13.5% plus 6.8%. Ugh, I'm getting so frustrated. Very few claims relating to personal real estate received any form of compensation because the commission concluded that most were sold for fair market value. Farmers, whose property had been seized by the Soldier Settlement Board, received $632,226.61 combined, despite that being only half of their total claim. And again, Japanese Canadians, these aren't... These aren't people from some other place. They are Japanese Canadians. They aren't, they aren't foreign nationals. They got the short end of the stick. So we're going to sell your stuff. You're going to get a very small percentage of it. And we're going to make the process so difficult, you won't be able to really file a claim. So you, you know. And they were never enemies. So they you talk, they talk about this like enemy, blah, blah, enemy. This, they were never enemies. Never. They're Canadians with from a different, like, from not... Who a, looked different. Who, yeah. And probably spoke differently, some of them. Absolutely. And, um, like, most Canadians do these days, right? Like, it's, it's a lovely mishmash, but... Yeah. Um, can you imagine, Mike? Any, like, right, can you imagine a Canadian? Oh, you know what? We're, we're having an, we're, we're in a war with a country that your ancestors are from. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take everything you have... 
Yep. And put you in a crappy camp. Yep. That's exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. So think of yourself, who you know, Canadians living, living, Canadians living out there, people listening, right? Imagine where your heritage is from, wherever, and imagine Canada gets involved in a war. Yeah. And then you're sort of interned. You're an enemy. You're an enemy of the state, suddenly, yeah. because of who your grandparents were. Mm-hmm. Only two years after the war, in 1947, the first nationwide organization of Japanese Canadians, the National Japanese Canadian Citizens Association, NJCCA, was founded in Ontario on Labor Day weekend. It took 40 years of activism for Canada to apologize officially and make redress to those who remained. On September 22, 1988, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney delivered an apology and the Canadian government announced a compensation package one month after President Ronald Reagan made similar gestures in the United States. So we had to wait for the states to act first. Mulroney was Reagan's poodle, but go on. From cbc.ca, and this is Mulroney speaking, quote, I know that I speak for members on all sides of the House today in offering Japanese Canadians the formal and sincere apology of this parliament for those past injustices against them against their families, and against their heritage, and our solemn commitment and undertaking to Canadians of every origin that such violations will never again in this country be countenanced or repeated, end quote. The $300 million compensation package, which was given to them, included $21,000 each for the 13,000 survivors, $12 million for a Japanese community fund, and $24 million to create a Canadian Race Relations Foundation to ensure such discrimination would not happen again. So $21,000 for internment. It sounds like a pretty shitty deal to me, especially because there's interest on money mm. and a lot, a lot of the property that was taken from these people was worth a lot more than that in, in a dollar value today as well. It's also interesting to me that it took 40 years to ensure a lot to, it took 40 years to resolve all this. Mm -hmm. And I know we had a little bit of banter about this, but here is what I think happens. The government is aware that it will cost a lot of money. I don't know if it's like top of mind, but it has to be somewhere in people's subconscious. If we own up to this right away, we are going to be compensating people a lot of money. So we wait until people are dead. This seems the Canadian way. We're seeing it in residential schools. We're seeing it here with compensation for these kind of things. I think our government is just like, well, we'll drag our feet until there's fewer people to pay off. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm, I may be just being... Uh, a negative Nancy here, but I see it. I see it a slightly different way. Okay, that it takes time for the truth come out to come out. Yep, it takes time for but forty years takes time for f society to change, mm. right? And 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 people to um, br bring attention to it. Mm. I was actually speaking to a Japanese Canadian who's descendant, um, who said it was when this happened. Yeah, she, she said. I didn't care about the money. Yeah. She's like, I didn't like, she's like, this was a very good thing that this happened. So she wasn't like, oh, I didn't get enough money. She was like, 
finally there's this recognition that's all she wanted. Yeah, fair enough. At By that point, right? Mm-hmm. So following redress, there was an increased teaching in the public education system about internment, which is great. But is this all enough? We talked earlier with the war in Ukraine raging and mistrust of other cultures rapidly growing. Do you think we'll see this again? I really hope not, but you were telling me a story about somebody crying on your shoulder recently. So we have a Ukrainian refugee in our building. Mm -hmm. We have Russians in our building. Right. I've spoken to them both. Yeah. Um, One Russian woman that I don't know extremely well, but she was upset in the elevator. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just, ha- you know, you know, when you get into another, hey, how are you? Right. Oh, not well. Yeah. And then we started talking about the war. She's Russian. Yeah. And eventually <laughs> I'm like, do you need a hug? And I like hugged her and she like cried on, in my, on my shoulder. So she feels terrible about what's happening. She feels terrible about what's happening. She feels terrible that she has family members now that are getting drafted. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and she's, she's talking about... The fact that, you know, Russians can't, you know, if you, if you go against Putin, mm-hmm. you get arrested and swifted away. Yeah. She's like, everyone's afraid to do anything. Right. So, so, you know, the, bab- I think I've said this before, the babushka on the corner shop selling Pelmini has nothing to do with, <laughs> with, with Putin's doing. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have to constantly remember this, especially when times are tough, right? Because when times get hard and the, you know, the, the sabers are rattled and the media is jumping on stuff and politicians are jumping off stuff, what you just have to remember is that's a next door neighbor of yours, right? <laughs> that's a next door neighbor of yours. And, you know, don't buy into all of the crap. Did she mention being worried about how she might be treated here? Uh, if Canada goes to war with Russia. No, I didn't um, get that. Yeah. Didn't. But I'm sure that's in her mind too. Of course. Yeah. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 240, The Shameful History of Wartime Internment in Canada. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right. Let's listen to some voicemails. Here's our first one. This one looks like a short one. Let's have a have a listen. Hey, bonjour les gars. Mon nom c'est Eric. Je suis un francophone de la belle province de Québec. J'habite en banlieue de Montréal. And I wanted to scare you with starting to by speaking French at first. So it would, you know, be a little bit more interesting. Uh, I find you guys very interesting, uh, especially uh, I uh, adored the episode on La Corivo. There was a little bit of stuff lost in translation, but you guys were you, you were very respectful and very interesting. At first, I thought you wouldn't be, but then I kind of you grow you grew on me <laughs> a lot. So uh, have a nice day. Pierre Chia votre chapeau. Salut. Salut. Okay, great. I Matthew and I just kind of looked at each other when you started in French, but you know what? Great. I actually understood everything you said. Yeah, I did. But too. it's kind of the if it, as a Canadian, it's like, hi, my name is where I'm from. Sure. If yeah. you don't know, know that, you're kind of you got to brush up a little. Exactly. Bit, right? You haven't <laughs> haven't been through French in school, but um, 
but yeah, that's really cool. And I'm glad uh, we do an okay job because it's true. Things do get lost in translation. Um, things between, if you don't understand the nuance of a culture, sometimes things get lost. And I honestly don't understand uh, French Canada as I could had I been immersed in it growing up. And I, mm -hmm. I hadn't been. So Well, I, I work for a French company. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're in a meeting and you're just realizing, hey, there's this disconnect and everyone has to stop and just kind of like figure out where, where something was missed, you know, because there's slight cultural and language differences. Yeah, there you go. This one looks like a a rather long voicemail, so let's have a listen anyway. <laughs> Hi, Mike and Matthew. This is Amy of the Other Browns, no E. Anyways, first-time caller, long-time listener, out on the road in BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. You guys keep me company. Anyways, just wanted to call and say how much I love the show and also share a little story with you guys, because I know you love stories. My job is in emergency services, and I grew up on Vancouver Island, actually born in the home of the Nanaimo Bar, and do love them. That aside, when I was, well, a little while ago anyways, but one of the things that was a test of my professionalism and um, mental fortitude was um, after I moved off the island, I should digress a little bit here, give you a little bit of a backstory. I worked for one of the largest hospitals in the Fraser Health Authority, well, two of them actually. In doing so, in the eMERGE department, had the, I don't want to call it pleasure, because it certainly wasn't that, of having to care for uh, both Olsen and Picton on a couple of occasions in my duties in the eMERGE department. So that was very challenging especially considering that um, Mr. Olson was, I don't even want to call him Mr., Monster Olson was actually arrested just outside of my hometown when I was in my early teens. So very closely connected to that story and later in life having to care for him um, in the emergency department was very difficult from a professional standpoint, but in my job I need to make sure that I do stay very objective and it doesn't matter who you've got laying in front of you, um, you have to give them the same care and attention you would somebody's grandmother. Anyways, um, just wanted to share that with you guys. Um, yeah, go take a poop in your toque. Um, hugs to Waffle and Ego and Eve. Have a great day, guys. There you go. She, good, good throwing cats and dog as well. Uh, thanks, Amy. That's really fascinating. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, people are going to run into these guys. She didn't really get into how she dealt with Picton, but whatever. But, but Clifford Olson having to treat that guy like a human being when he is somebody who doesn't treat other human beings like human beings. That'd be incredibly difficult. Yeah. Like, Amy, so, like she knows her job though, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you've heard stories. It's kind of similar to you hear stories of, you know, um, terrorist attacks and doctors having to look after like the terrorist. Yeah. Right? It, it'd be the same sort of feeling probably. Oh, yes. Way. But uh, thank you for... 
God, that's such a hard job. I just want to say thanks to her anyway, right? Yeah, like, right. Like you, uh, she... working in emergency. Like I mean, I was around emergency as a security guard at Vancouver General. Like I was a security guard in the emergency department, so I know how difficult it is some nights for and and days for people to have to deal with certain yeah. individuals in yeah. in that environment. And they weren't serial killers. No, they were just regular folks off the street who were difficult. Like, holy smokes, I can't even imagine having to deal with those two twits. When Justin was in the emergency last year, mm -hmm. there was this really annoying person that was like in the bed beside him. Oh, yeah. And Justin told me, turned to him and just said, I hate you. Oh, God. <laughs> and I bet a lot of times emergency workers want to do the same thing. Yeah. Let's listen to our last voicemail. Uh, it, it is uh, a little shorter, so yeah. Good morning, Mike and Matthew. My name is Diane, and I am calling from the start line of the PEI Half Marathon. Um, a lot of listeners call on their wedding day, but I'm calling you on my race day. I think it's only appropriate because you have kept me company on a lot of my training runs around my small town. And I must tell you that some of the podcast content has really freaked me out um, when I'm running around my, my, uh, the streets of my town late in the evening. And for reasons of my own personal safety, I am not going to disclose the name of the small town where I do my long solo runs in the dark. Yeah. Um, and sorry, but I'm not going to bring you along today for the race. Today is all about me. It's all about savoring the experience. Um, I tore my Achilles tendon last summer, and today's race is just a victory lap for me to celebrate my recovery. Thanks for making my long training runs less tedious. Keep on keeping on. Bye for now. Wow. That's really, I love when people call us from different things, different I, places. Diane, I hope you did well. Yeah. And congratulations on getting back on the horse, if you will. Yeah. After, after your injury. Yeah. Totally. Like, I didn't think people would train to us. Do you think we should start speaking at like 180 beats per minute to keep the pace? We are running right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what I listen to when I try to jog. I, I mostly waddle, but I listen to... <laughs> I, listen to <laughs> I listen to audiobooks and podcasts when I walk, because that's what I do. Yeah, I well, now that I, when I walk, it's an audiobook. Yeah. But when I try to run, it's like techno... When I try to run, it's a disaster. <laughs> I used to run like a lot. I mean, you've you've seen the photos of me when I was a kid. I used to run in races too. Uh, but now uh, the only race is to the bathroom in the morning. That's pretty much it. Like I have to beat the cats there. So You're cute when you're young. Uh, anyway, that's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All right, it's time for some patrons, and first up is our good friend, a longtime listener from Manchester, Connecticut, Trish Debkowski. Trish, Trish Debkowski, number yarder, longtime, longtime friend of the show. Thank you so much, Trish. Um, what on earth does Trish Dubkowski do there in Manchester, Connecticut? 
in Manchester, Connecticut. Yeah. She is the lead singer in a Who cover band. In a Who cover band? Is yeah. the Who from Manchester? No. They're, I thought, yeah, they're from London, right? Yeah. But okay. Interesting. Why not? So the Who cover band. Yeah. So she's the lead. So she's essentially Roger Daltrey. She is. Wow. That's great. Does she dress like him and all that kind of stuff? Tight pants and no, but her maybe her, a pickle her in her pants. Na- her stage name is Roger Adultery. Roger Adultery. Yeah. Oh, that, that's like a drag queen name. <laughs> that is actually, isn't it? Well, thank you, Trish, so Thanks, much. Trish. Yeah, much appreciated. Um, next up, we have Lola Rickenbacker, and I don't know where Lola is from, Matthew. Lola Rickenbacker, Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah. Where in Kentucky, though? Knickerbocker. Knickerbocker, Kentucky. Yeah. Okay, we don't know if that's but an actual place. Sounds like a place that would it be. It could in Kentucky, be. Though, yeah. Actually. And what does she do in Kentucky? She actually, you know, how many zombie movies have been made recently? Lots. Yeah. yeah. So she's like, she has a full time gig being a zombie extra. Oh, there you go. Yep. Just a foot dragger. Yep, she's yep. a foot dragger. Yeah, there she you go. Makes some, she makes some good cash from it. There you go. Thanks, and thanks for sharing your cash with us, Lola. Thank you, Lola. Much appreciated. Um, next, we have some donut money from Scotty Mack of Sandy Bay, Saskatchewan, and he challenges anyone else named Scotty Mack to chip in for donut money. So even if your name isn't Scotty Mack, just say it is and chip in. Mm. But um, so... Scotty Mack is from Sandy Bay, Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. And what does he do there in Sandy Bay? He owns a chain of uh, Scottish uh, fast food restaurants. Really? Yeah. So you really want to try the Scotty Mack with cheese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Scotty Mack with cheese. That sounds really good. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It's sort of cannibalistic. <laughs> Scotty Mack with cheese. Yeah. Um, Danielle Chaliwa has sent us some donut money, and she says treats for Steve. That's very nice. Um, I think we've tell, said that she is from a place and given her a job, but maybe she has another place and job. So, Danielle, where is she from, Matthew? She's from a small town called Judas. Judas? Yeah. Okay, and and what does she do in Judas? Is she a priest? No, she's a butterfly collector. Oh, there you go. A butterfly Collector in Judas. Where is Judas, though? Saskatchewan. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Didn't you know? No, I had no idea. Uh, next, we have uh, someone named Celeste Commodore, who left us some donut money. And she's from Cultus Lake originally, Cultus Lake, British Columbia, but now lives in Hamilton. Hmm. She says she wanted to leave a voicemail, but maybe too long, so she sent us an email instead. Um, and she'd love to see what crazy job... Matthew comes up with for her. Well, mm-hmm. right. Her first name is actually Mary. Okay. Um, but she goes by Celeste. Mary Celeste. And, oh, so she's a boat. And Commodore. Yes. Right. It's captain. Right. Oh, wow. Essentially. So she comes from a long naval family. Like it, like long belly button no, naval? No, no. <laughs> ships and such. Okay. Ships and such. Um, she started her career. Mm-hmm. At the cultist like water park. So that's how she got into I love the water slides. <laughs> so, so, you know. That's mm-hmm. how she got into the Oh, the there Navy. you go. And now she's in Hamilton, and she's actually captain of a ship that takes the steel uh, out of the, from from Hamilton through the Great Lakes uh, to abroad. Wow. Ship captain. Started started at a water park, and now she's a ship captain. There you go. Yeah. That's awesome. Next, we have Monique Johanna Stone, 
And she says, from the gold mines in Dawson City, Yukon. Ah. So is she a, like a panning for gold up there or is she? She's actually another cover band person. Okay. She's a cover band for um, Loretta Lynn. For Loretta Lynn. Yeah. Coal miner's daughter who she, just her, passed away. Did she? Yes, she just passed away oh. this past week. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. She's been around for a while. Well, apropos. So, but it's called Goldminer's Daughter. That's Gold. The name, that's the name of their band. There you go. That's yeah. great. Next we have, right here from Surrey. Oh. Manjot Singh. Manjot, thank you. I think Manjot has donated Hello, before. Hello, Manjot. Thank and you very much. So Manjot, we, I believe we have given another job, but perhaps Manjot has more than one profession. So yeah. what else does Manjot Singh do here in Surrey? I think Manjot is a police officer. Oh, and that's th a loaded topic in Surrey right and now. And I think Manjot needs to keep an eye on you, Mike. <laughs> Someone does. Manjot, message me on Facebook. I'll tell you where he lives. Okay. Next up. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Manjot. Next up, we have Alicia Maddox, and uh, she sent us some donut money. Alicia. Where's Alicia from, Matthew. The Florida Keys. The Florida Keys. Oh, that's great. I always wanted to drive one of those big boats with the fan on the back through the... the through hovercraft? The, through the ever, Everglades. Have you yeah. ever done it? No, I it's would fun, love... It's fun, except... Yeah. You get like snapdragons in your teeth. Okay. Dragonflies. So what does Alicia Maddox do there in the Florida Keys? She's an alligator wrestler. Oh, well... Someone's got to do it. Yeah. Those alligators aren't going to wrestle, wrestle themselves. That's true. Unlike your cats who do wrestle themselves, <laughs> the alligators won't. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much, guys. Yes, exactly. Thank, thank you so much to everybody who uh, sent us donut money or became a patron. We really appreciate it. We do. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for Dark Poutine this week. Oh my goodness, wow. That was um, a great show. That was a good show and such a sad Topic. part of our history. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad we could cover it. It's something that I've wanted to cover for since the beginning of the show. And uh, it, I see, I seem to be saying that a lot because I had a big list at yeah, the I'm beginning. Sure you did. Yeah. But the thing is something we didn't touch on. I know we're at the end of the show. I'm like so fascinated with Japanese culture and Me art. Me too. Yeah. Um, so I have like this affinity in my heart and which makes it even worse, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Plus you've been there. Yeah. Thanks everybody. And don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye.
new on Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.